Hey, South Bend City Church. Welcome to week three of our series, Old Creed, New World. Before we get to that, I just want to remind you of a few things going on in the life of our community. The first thing I want to remind you of is what we are calling New to South Bend City Church Tables. If you consider yourself new to this community, whatever that means, and if you live in the South Bend area, we would love for you to join us on October 2nd, right after the 11 o'clock gathering. So right around 12.15 or so, we'll spend about an hour and you'll have the opportunity to meet other people who call this community home. You'll have the chance to talk and meet some of the staff and to ask any questions that you may have. So if you are interested in that opportunity, go ahead and email info at southbendcitychurch.com just so that we make sure we have enough food for everyone. And just one more note about that is that this time we do not have child care available. Hopefully that will happen in the future, but this time child care will not be available. With that, just know that if you are part of our South Bend City Church community, but you don't live in South Bend, whether you live in a different state or across the globe, we are continuing to have conversations about what it looks like to create opportunity for connection for you as well. And so stay tuned for that, but just know that wherever you're listening from, that we're so glad that you're a part of this community. And if you do consider this to be your community, your home, and are invested in the things that are happening here, you can always give financially by going to southbendcitychurch.com backslash give. We know that giving comes in a bunch of different areas, whether that's time or energy or conversation or finances, but just know that that opportunity is always there for you as well. Like I said, today we are in week three of our series, Old Creed, New World, and today we talk God, maker of heaven and earth. And today Jason Miller tackles this topic. Since the 19th century, the story of creation has been complicated by another story about the biological processes that led to the diversity of life that we see on our planet. But are these competing stories, or is it possible that God is showing us something beautiful in the story that we hear from Darwin and others? All right, let's take a deep breath. Settle in and join Jason for this week's sermon. Um, like I said, we're talking through this creed, this, um, this very ancient way of narrating a particular story about reality. We began with these words, we believe, a few weeks ago and talked about how, first of all, belief here might have less to do with the mental furniture in your head and like, you know, 18 doctrinal points on a bulleted statement and more to do with what you give your heart to. Uh, with what you love, with what you trust, with where you sort of root and ground your life. And we also called out the fact that in the earlier ways of reciting this creed, it was usually recited, we believe, not I believe, which people smarter than me who've thought about this for a long time have suggested that's actually the better way to do it. Because to, to be a believing community is to be a part of a family, a circle of people who carry the story together. And maybe there's days when you don't believe all of it, or days when I don't believe all of it. But the point isn't whether you can like individually own every part of the story every day. The point might be whether you're a part of a family that carries the story and learns how to live out the story together. So that was kind of where we started. And then we went a little further with we believe in God, that for this story at the heart of reality, there's a loving mystery. There's something at the heart of things that transcends things, that there's more here that meets the eye. And we've just tried to acknowledge that while this is a family that celebrates the story, it's also a family that sees how complicated it is to relate to these four words in the modern world. But you're not crazy if you feel conflicted about these words. Maybe it's because of the culture wars that have been fought over these words or because of the different kind of claims about reality that we hear from today. But this doesn't just say we believe in God. It goes on to describe this God in a certain kind of way. And the first words the creed has for God are not um, God the judge or God the distant one. The first words the creed has for the nature of that mystery are relational words. 
words that describe a kind of loving relationship between whatever this story is talking about and us. Words about uh, daughters and sons who are meant to be free and to take good care of one another. So we've made it that far, and today we're going to go a little further. The next line of the creed calls this God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Let's, uh, let's work on this just for a little bit today. Uh, anybody know what this image is from? Has anybody seen this image in the news in the last few months? Yeah, yeah, this is one of the images of, uh, that the James Webb Telescope has provided for us. So if you haven't followed this development, you know, um, I don't know, a couple of decades ago, we put the Hubble telescope up in space and it gave us access to incredible imagery from far reaches of, of the universe. Well, now this James Webb telescope is farther out with much better capacities to see even more. It's largely taking an infrared light, which is out there, although you can't see it with the naked eye, and it's producing these kinds of images that are allowing scientists to peer like way back in time, because you know one of the weird things about space is that because light actually takes some time to travel, that you can actually sort of look back in time, back into history, because of light that comes to us today, like maybe got sent our direction a long, long, long time ago, which means that with the Webb telescope, we're even getting glimpses of how it is that stars are born. I mean, it's like really compelling, striking stuff, right? And I don't know if you've spent any time with these images, but I have, and they're really quite moving to me. And I was like digging into this, uh, the telescope, and reading some articles about it, and listening to some podcasts about it. And as I was digging into it, uh, I heard um, an audio clip from the press conference where NASA debuted the first images from the Webb telescope. And President Biden was there celebrating this accomplishment. And uh, this is gonna sound like I'm picking on Biden, I promise I'm not, just hang with me for a minute. We don't really do that here, but it just struck, I, I was meditating on these images and, and the kind of expanses that they put in front of us, the kind of scale and scope of the universe that we live in. And as I was having all of those feelings, and then I heard this quote as uh, President Biden was sort of talking about what this means, and this is the quote. These images remind the world that America can do big things. Now, look, I get that it's a president's job to, like, champion our efforts. I get that. And by the way, the space race has always been a little bit about superiority. That's, like, the thing, whether it's the Cold War or today, there's been some of that going on there for sure. But if I'm being honest, my heart sank a little bit when I heard it. Because I think it's not just me. I think it's often been the case for humanity that when we see creation, when we see the world in its expansiveness, when we get a glimpse at the scope and the scale of the universe that we live in, it has often been a thing that sort of helps us reflect on things that are bigger than us, right? It's often been the case that we feel the kind of thing that Paul said in a letter called Romans, like here in uh, chapter uh, one. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. As if to say that when you get a glimpse of the world around you, of the, of the created order around you, that you're actually getting a, a glimpse, uh, a, a, a lens into the nature of the mystery at the heart of all things that gave us these things. That, like whether it's uh, like the big expansive stuff or the stuff that you see under a microscope, whether it's a walk in the woods or a night sky, that when you get a, a glimpse of the created things, you're also getting a glimpse of the thing that's behind the created things. Um, there's a word for that, which is wonder, which is a sacred, holy way 
of feeling a little bit small. Not to hang your head, not to beat yourself up, not to think that it's bad to be human, but just that to be human is to be in the relation with something much, much, much larger than ourselves. You know, we have poetry, whether it's from the psalmists or whether it's like, I don't know, great songs written today that often name the experience of being in front of something much larger than yourself and feeling in a holy, sacred, enlivening kind of way. That there is something, someone, that there is a mystery that is bigger than us, that is on display in all the things that we see around us. This is like often the human reflection on these things. The creed um, calls us out right, right away. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in a story that says that we are, are creatures, that we live in a created world with a creator, with an artist behind all of these things, that every day when we set our sights on creation, we are in fact glimpsing something whose beauty is intended. I mean, that can be a, a gift and a grounding for us in the world that we live in these days, right? Um, what a beautiful way to, to know your own place in the world. Now, that being said, what I thought would be really interesting today would be to press further into a question, because we're calling this series Old Creed, New World, meaning we have this old creed that's come to us from centuries prior. It has narrated Christian faith for believers all around the world through all kinds of different experiences. But we also live in a new world with new questions and new discoveries and new ideas. And I think what's interesting, if Paul is right, that, that we see sort of the nature of God and the things that God has made, it could also be the case, hang with me now, that you see the nature of God in how things are made. Not just what has been made, but how things have been made. Now, an interesting thing happened in the 19th century, which is uh, a guy named Darwin um, did a lot of observing, and he asked a lot of questions. And Darwin sort of inherited a whole line of inquiry that preceded him by generations, like many people for generations kind of wondering about how it is that species arrive on planet Earth and all of their varied forms, like how all, all this works. And of course, I'm, I'm talking about like the theory of natural selection and evolution, right? Now, I know you're at church and the preacher's talking about evolution and everybody's heart rate just ticked up a little bit. Um, I know that this has been one of the battle lines, right? Uh, I remember, man, I remember like I went to a, a Christian college. Um, I remember very distinctly in a, sitting in a Bible class where a professor with a deep sense of conviction looked at all of us and said, if you give up on like a literal seven days of creation that happened like 7,000 years ago or whatever, if you give up on that, then you also have to give up on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty like fierce statement, right? I remember a preacher I love and admire um, who preached on the same stage that I preached on for a very long time, who with great passion and fire in his belly said um, evolution will never be proven true because the Bible doesn't allow for it. And the thing is like everything that I understand, I'm not a scientist, but everything I understand about the science is that like Scientists are quite convinced that the, the, basically the process that Darwin described is pretty much right. That like in the kind of biological observation, it seems to be the case 
that let's just kind of like get down to the, you know, the micro, the concrete version of this, that like when a litter of offspring is born to an animal, that every one of those offspring has different sort of genetic little mutations, little differences, little variations in how they show up in the world, and those contribute to strengths and weaknesses in the world. And, they, and that, of course, like with a whole litter of offspring with different sort of aptitudes and physical variations, that in the way that the natural world works, some of those offspring are going to survive better than others because of those little variations, which means they're going to pass those genes on down to the next batch of offspring. And that if you repeat that process, not just once or twice or 10 times or 100 times, but if you repeat that process over and over again for 3.8 billion years, you're going to end up with this great variety of species that we see with these incredible adaptations that are just bizarrely and beautifully functional in the environments where the entire diversity of species finds itself living on planet Earth, right? I mean, just like, you know, uh, there's a, a Reddit sub, there's a, I don't, you guys know Reddit? I don't recommend it, but I'm on it all the time. Reddit is a, <laughs> it's a web forum, and there's some subreddits that just sort of like capture videos of creation at its weirdest and most beautiful. And I will go down that internet hole for hours, right? And yeah, you will see some of the strangest manifestations of life, and yet you will also see some of the most beautiful, peculiar, bizarre adaptations. So we live in this like, last 200 years where Darwin comes along and makes a pretty compelling case based on his observations and built upon the thoughts of prior thinkers that it seems like there's this process that has been going on for quite a long time and then you kind of combine that biological observation with geological observations about the age of the earth that seem to suggest that, yeah, like for billions of years, this process has been happening. And for 200 years, Christians have been really conflicted about it. Now, what's interesting is if you go back way before Darwin, you can go back like 1,600 years and find commentaries from great thinkers like Augustine on the book of Genesis, on the creation story, where they say things like, by the way, you know this isn't literal, right? This is way, way before Darwin. You can find some of the greatest thinkers in the church saying things like, you understand this is a theological text. It's doing theological work. Like, you, you can take that from way before Darwin and fast forward to the time that we live in right now and say, like, maybe Genesis 1, that, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and on day one, he did this, and on day two, he did this. In Genesis 2, where, you know, uh, God forms Adam from the dust and the ground and then pulls the rib out of him and makes Eve, that, that these stories weren't written to protect us from good science, that they were written to do other things. So let me just say as clearly as I can, in case I haven't, like, gotten to it yet. Like, I'm a person who thinks that, it, from what I can tell, from what I understand it, because I have no reason to distrust the science, the science is probably accurately describing the biological processes by which God made all of this. And I just don't think there's a problem with that. Now, you might ask, well, then what's Genesis 1 written for? Like, why would we have this text that does the things that it does? Great question. Uh, it turns out that Genesis 1 uh, probably comes to us from a time when the Israelite people are coming out of exile. They had been whisked away to Babylon, where they spent their time around the Babylonians, hearing the ways the Babylonians described the origins of all of this. And there's a couple of features of the ancient stories that they would have heard that really stand out in contrast to the way that the making story is told in Genesis 1 and 2. Let me give you just two uh, brief examples. So first of all, in the Babylonian creation myth, the one that these Israelites would have heard when they were taken away into exile, 
The story goes something like this. The gods are in the heavens, and two of them get in a fight. And one of them wins the fight and kills the other deity, takes the carcass of the deity, the dead body of its vanquished foe, rips it in half, and one half becomes the earth, and the other half becomes the heavens. That's a story that says all of this is rooted in divine violence and conflict. Interestingly, by the way, that's the narrating creation myth of a very violent empire called Babylon. Because it turns out that the stories that you tell about how we got here and what God is like end up being our imagination for how we move forward and what we should be like. So the Israelites are sort of swimming in these waters and hearing these stories about a world rooted in divine conflict and violence. And they see the effect of that on themselves because they're the victims of conflict and violence as this empire called Babylon has come in, ransacked their villages and taken them away. And they have the audacity, the imagination to tell a different kind of story. One rooted in divine harmony and joy and beauty, well, that's a reason to read Genesis 1. Not to win a fight with the scientists who I think genuinely are just trying to figure out what's going on biologically and seem to have a pretty clear consensus on what has happened in those processes. But to have a story that says the way that God makes things is not rooted in violence, the way that God moves the story forward is not through coercive power or violence, but through harmony and joy. I mean, in the Genesis 1 story, God keeps delighting in what God has made. Now, I know a victor might celebrate the fact that they have vanquished a foe, but nobody looks at the, at the dead body of a foe and says, it is good. But in Genesis 1, we hear over and over again, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Now, there's another story that gets told around that time and in that part of the world, which has, again, to do with all this creating work. And it's not about how the earth and the heavens got here. It's a story that says that once the earth and the heavens were here, the deities got tired of doing the chores. Seriously, this is basically how one of these stories goes. That now that we have this created world with all of its stuff, it's got to be taken care of. So they, they like literally are complaining in the heavens to one another about the fact that this creation is a problem to deal with. And then humanity is created as janitors, essentially, to like take the dirty work off the hands of the gods. That's a different way that you can talk about what it means to be human. And it turns out it was sort of a predominant way of talking about what it meant to be human in the world at the time and place when Genesis 1 and 2 come to us. And instead there we read about God not looking for janitors to do the dirty work, but God looking for partners to do the divine work with God, which is what the scripture is saying when it says not only did God make all of this, but God made us in God's image to keep doing the kinds of things that God likes to do. I don't think Genesis 1 and 2 were written to defeat a guy named Darwin or to argue with the scientists about what seemed to be some really beautiful observations about the biological processes that are part of God's creating work in the world. I think Genesis 1 and 2 are written to tell much more important stories about the fact that all of this is rooted in divine harmony and love, not conflict. That perhaps the way the story moves forward is through harmony and love and not violence. And to say that to be human is to be with God in the creative work. 
not just um, the dirty work that the gods don't want to do, but the divine work that God is doing with us. Now, this, um, this evolutionary stuff, I think, is interesting because um, if Paul is right and that God's invisible qualities are seen by what God has made, and if, if it's okay for me to kind of run with that and propose that maybe not just what God has made, but how God has made, and if it's true that that kind of iterative, incremental process that evolution describes is how God actually does God's creative work. Well, this is interesting to me because the scripture also talks about us as being like the objects of God's creative work. Uh, for example, in the book of Philippians, God who began a good work in you, who began it, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now hang with me for a moment here. If you have some feeling that your own life is one of God's creative projects, but if the way that you think of God creating things is like divine fiat, he just snaps God's fingers and things are the way that God wants them to be, right? God waves a magic wand and we go from nothing to something and everything is the way that it's supposed to be. If that's the way you think about God's creative work, but then you look at your own life and it's not going that way. If you look at your own life and it feels like a lot of trial and error, if you look at your own life and it feels like two steps forward and one step back, if you look at your own life and it feels like it's taking a lot of patience because you feel like you're not who you were meant to be quite yet, not who you were made to be quite yet. Well, if the, if the only image you have of God making things in the world is one where God just sort of speaks and it is, then maybe you feel like a failure. like a failed version of the project. If you think that the idealized way that God works is that you know, things move very quickly from concept to reality, then I don't know what you do with most of the days that are, at least in my life, where it feels like two steps forward and one step back and trial and error and incremental with all kinds of patience required. But what if that's how God has always done the things that God does. Like, what if that kind of two steps forward, one step back, infinitely patient, creative work is actually how God is doing the things that God wants to do in your life? What if it's okay that, like, there are plenty of days when you feel like you run into a dead end and you have to back up before you find a new way forward? What if that's actually how you know that you are in the work with God? What if that's how it actually goes? Like, I think a lot of us could stand to be so much more patient with the creative work of our own lives, with the growing up process of our own lives, with the healing work of our own lives. And if you take a step back and you say, wow, what if that's how all of the good and beautiful things around me came to be? Maybe you give yourself a break. Maybe you learn to delight with God in the small incremental ways that you were growing up. Maybe you become more patient with yourself and with the creative process that is working itself out in who you are. It's working itself out in your marriage. It's working itself out in your parenting. It's working yourself out on the job. It's working itself out in the addiction that you are still struggling with. In all of those areas, what if it's okay that it's not just a straight line from concept to reality, but this incremental creative process that seems to be the way that God has made all of the beautiful things that you see when you look around the world, and you are part of that. Um, we are in the process of being made. And if evolution is perhaps not a conspiracy to take away your faith, 
but just human beings using their minds to inquire about the natural order of things and discovering there a slow process, a patient process. Then maybe you could be patient with yourself too, huh? Now, um, this is where we're going to come back to James Webb, and I think you're going to find out I'm not as mad at Biden as I sounded when I started. Because as I've already pointed out, Scripture doesn't just refer to us as creatures being created. We also read from the very beginning, like in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that we are also makers made in the image of a maker. Because you're not just being created every day. You are doing some creating, aren't you? I know you may not feel like you're the kind of person to bust out the paint and canvas or the poetry. Not everybody feels those kinds of explicitly artistic vibes. But I've yet to meet a human being who doesn't have their hands on some kind of creative project. Again, whether it's the family that you're raising or the parents that you're helping to age or the classroom that you are trying to tend to or the business that you're trying to build. I mean, maybe you're just trying to put your own life back together after everything has fallen apart. That is an inherently creative process. And it turns out that, that we are makers made in the image of a maker. Uh, and so it might be that as you get your own hands on the raw materials of the world around you and you do your own kind of creating work, that there will be trial and error, but that doesn't mean it won't be beautiful and good. I mentioned the Hubble telescope. Uh, anybody remember when the Hubble telescope came out? I remember being in school as a kid growing up and the images from the Hubble telescope being really exciting. But does anybody remember that there was a problem with Hubble before it worked? I remember this as a kid, like hearing about this. You know, they, they put this massive telescope up in space, and then the images start coming back, and they're blurry. <laughs> now, I remember hearing about the problem and the mission to fix it, and I remember hearing like comedians making fun of the scientists. Like, I feel like this was a late night beat for a minute, making fun of these scientists. And for some reason, until like a month ago, when I looked back into it, my memory was that they had made some really colossal, idiotic error that just they had mud on their face. Can you believe these dumb scientists and the mistake they made? Come on, people, get your act together. Does anybody know what the margin of error was that caused the problem? It was a mirror polishing problem. It's, you know, a, a telescope has a big old mirror, kind of like a lens and a camera, to gather all those images. The margin of error that caused the problem was two microns. A piece of paper is 100 microns thick. How would you like to be in a line of work where that margin of error screws the whole project up? Aren't you thankful there's probably a little more grace in whatever it is that you and I are doing right now? And yet, we got up there and we fixed it, and long before the Webb Telescope came along, we have benefited from the images that we've gotten from Hubble. And now the Webb Telescope is up there, and it's working brilliantly. Brilliantly. And so, frankly, there's a sense in which I'm like, you know what, President Biden, you're right. We can do big things. This is the sort of um, tension of calling God maker and remembering that he, he has made us as makers too. You are like simultaneously invited into a holy sense of smallness and wonder. You're you and I'm me and we're these little homo sapiens walking around planet Earth 
in a, an unimaginably expansive creative project crafted by the divine. And we are makers made in the image of the God who creates such beautiful, expansive things. And we can do big things. And we are, in fact, in the flow of the divine work. We are, in fact, walking in the shadow of the divine in all of the creating that we do. And it doesn't have to feel transcendent. It doesn't have to feel like you wave a magic wand and all the creating that you want to create just happens exactly the way you thought. It can be that in the day-to-day grind and the grit of creating all the things that we are creating, of families and classrooms and businesses and neighborhoods and our own lives, in the day-to-day incremental work of all of that, that we are in the flow of the divine doing big things, even when they don't feel big. Um, It is something to walk around this universe sensing that there is a maker behind all of it, an, an, an intention behind all of it. That the beauty is not accidental and neither are you. It's holy to feel small in light of all of that. And it is surprising and profound to simultaneously discover that your own life is being raised up as a maker like the maker. We can do big things. Uh, We can send things into space. We can raise kids. We can build factories and then we can make them beautiful again. We can do big things, not because um, our egos have gotten us there, but because we are makers made in the image of a maker. And we trust this story. I want to propose again this week a couple of practices, a couple of ways to interact with this. One contemplative, one active. Here's the contemplative one. It's just this. Give some extended attention to creation. Just that. Maybe you want to just Google James Webb images. Spend some time seeing what the scientists are seeing right now. Like peek into the nurseries that are birthing stars. Are you kidding me? You can do that right now. You can actually look at the, the nurseries in the universe that are birthing stars. Or maybe you're going to go on a walk in the woods. Uh, maybe you're going to, rather than looking at the big macro stuff in the sky, maybe you're going to like literally stop and smell a rose. Seriously, maybe you're going to actually just turn toward um, one little artifact in the created order, and you're going to wonder about it. Maybe you're going to look at a little one in your life who is many days nothing but slobber and spit and snot and the things that go in diapers. And you're just going to let yourself marvel. Just marvel. Like, let yourself be given over into wonder and don't worry about whether it's dignified. Just fall into it. And as you do, if you don't know what to do with it, great, that's not the point. Just, just fall into wonder for a moment. And let your soul paradoxically be expanded by its feeling of smallness. Get some extended attention to creation this week. So that would be the contemplative practice for us. And then here's an active one. Create something for the pure joy of it. 
There's a, a line of theological reasoning that I think is really, really misguided that says that like, God is glory hungry, and so like, God needs all this glory. And, um, it's not the way I read the poem in Genesis 1. I don't read God creating for God's own ego project. I just see the divine generosity of God wanting, to, wanting there to be more life and love and goodness and delighting in every bit of it. And so I wonder this week if you could create something for the pure joy of it, not because it's useful, not because it solves a problem. Uh, when's the last time, like uh, adults, we don't, we don't do this very often, do we? Most of us, we are so busy solving problems and managing the household and doing all the things to make the bills pay off. Like, and I, I get that, that's real life for so many of us. But when's the last time you just let yourself unapologetically create something for the joy of it? You know what's great? It doesn't even matter if it turns out well. You could literally go to the art supply store and buy a canvas and you'd be like, I don't even know where to start. Good. Um, maybe you've been making the kids lunches for so long you forgot what it's like to make a pie just for fun. I don't know. Maybe you want to go out in the wood shop. Uh, maybe you want to write a poem. But just to tap briefly into that feeling of taking the raw materials of the world around you and making something beautiful out of them. And as you do that, maybe you will just feel even for a moment that you are in the flow of the divine as you do that. Uh, these are the practices for the week. Contemplate and act, and uh, we'll debrief them. Uh, before we go, we thought we'd reflect just a little while longer because if we're going to talk about wonder and creation, rather than just me talking at you, we thought we should meditate together a little further. And so um, Ryan Haley will help us do that now.
May you know the joy of sensing that all of this is made and beloved and not simply here. And may you know the joy of sensing that you are made and beloved and not simply here. May you sense the divine hand at work and the slow process of becoming that seems to be God's preferred way of bringing about all this beauty. May you find your own hands at work making beautiful things. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you soon.